Hello, and welcome to Tangents from Coin Center. I'm Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. And with me, as always, is Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research of Coin Center. Hi. Greetings, avid Tangents listeners. I mean, you know, the fact that we haven't put out uh, episodes of this August pod- podcast with any regularity doesn't mean that we don't have regular and the one listening after a multi-month hiatus are the avid listeners. There you go. There you go. Um, I think we are innovating in the medium. Um, <laughs> we if we don't have something to say, we don't say it. I, I don't know. I might be what you're doing. I'm having <laughs> a second child. Uh, his name is Otis, and he's adorable. All right. Uh, Peter, uh, today, uh, as people might be surmising perhaps from the title of the episode, um, we will be discussing the recent decision in SEC versus Ripple, um, which uh, has provoked a lot of discussion, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of uh, interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. As it should. As it should, absolutely. As you've been saying, especially you, me as well, for years, it's really great to finally have judge-made law in an area that has a common law um, character to it, you know, a lot of good judge-made securities law, and finally have something to read. That's right. Which is not to say that we haven't in the past, right? So um, this judge um, very uh, astutely cites the Telegram case, Mm -hmm. the um, library case, Mm -hmm. the kick case. So um, what we're seeing, though, is the development of a common law interpretation of the statute. And what I think shocked people here is that this case came out the other way. Um, the, you know, in that, uh, you're yeah. right. I you're mean, right. you know, I mean, Telegram was an emergency injunction against a distribution. Um, but, but really all Telegram was about was about these sales that had happened in advance of Telegram's launch. But my point is, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll get into all that. It, it it didn't come out as an unmitigated win for the SEC. Yes. And so now people are like, wait a minute. Um, but I think um, it's you know uh, visible from the fact that the judge cited all these previous cases. It was that this judge, Judge Torres, um, was able to distinguish those cases and, in fact, use them as support for her analysis. And so um, we get. Uh, basically a ruling that says um, that the XRP token itself is not a security, but that it can be the subject of a securities offering, mm-hmm. which just sounds very familiar to me, Peter. <laughs> Who's been saying that for about, I don't know, like eight, nine years? I mean, I mean okay. I've, said it. I've said it, Jerry. Were you, were you hoping for you? You've said it? <laughs> I was hoping for a we. We? Uh, like a we. Center, perhaps. Coin Center has said it. Yeah. And, you know, before we move on to that, yeah, just to undergird the point you were just making, I feel like this isn't some crazy judge at a left field. This is the this is the Southern District of New York. This is, you know, the same Court of Appeals, uh, federal court area as Telegram, as Kick. Like this is part of a lineage. And so. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are rightly saying, hey, this is just a district court opinion. Don't pay attention. It's going to get appealed. It could all change. But that's always true of a district court opinion. They can be appealed. Uh, there's, you know, legal issues still at stake. They will be appealed. And it will be appealed. But this is not like some crazy town 
uh, where we just got lucky with some some strange judge in some obscure part of the country or something like that. Which, by the way, that would be good law too. But that's <laughs> not what's going on here, you know. Like this is actually this is interesting. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, so what we're going to do is we're going to analyze the holding, basically, of, of the of the opinion of the case, and um, uh, we're also going to address some of what what I think has been. Um, just misreadings of what the judge has been saying that we've seen, um, you know, in the on Twitter or on the popular press, you know, et cetera. Um, so one thing I think the, the way to begin is to begin by understanding what the judge was ruling on here. The judge was ruling on here on summary judgment. Cross motions for summary. Cross motions of summary judgment, which means that both parties to the case uh, uh, petitioned for summary judgment. And so what is summary judgment? Summary judgment in theater, you know, you're close to this uh, more than I am these days. Um, but summary judgment is when um, all of the facts are basically not in dispute. Mm -hmm. The party agrees to what happened, right? There's, you don't even, even in the view of the facts most favorable to the other party, right. they have not cited a claim for uh, where relief is, is warranted. And so you should just give us judgment on the Right. And so the question is just a question of law. The judge here is just saying, look, you guys don't dispute about the facts. I just have to determine what the law is and apply it to the facts that you guys don't dispute. And that's what the judge did here. And, you know, as we begin, what I want to do is draw people's attention to two statements that the judge lays out as fact in the fact section of the uh, opinion. Um, which I don't think people have focused on, but I, you know, I think they're kind of crucial. So here's the first statement: "Quote: The founders did not sell any XRP before the launch of the XRP ledger, and Ripple never owned the 20 billion XRP retained by the three founders." That's one statement. Mm -hmm. The other statement is: "Quote: The XRP ledger is based on open source software. Anyone can use the ledger, submit transactions." host a node to contribute to the validation of transactions, propose changes to the source code, or develop applications that run on the ledger, quote, yep. close quote. Uh, so I'll ask you again, what, what does that remind you of? So it reminds me, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of our 2016 uh, paper, which we were drafting in 2015 and, and actually doing some outreach to the SEC in, in PowerPoint presentations about on securities regulation uh, in the cryptocurrency space. And how to interpret Howie. And how to interpret Howie, specifically things like the third prong, uh, efforts of others, where we said, look, um, you know, decentralization, as we talk about it in the community, is not a legal term. It's not. But some of these fact patterns are relevant to a determination of whether people are relying on the efforts of a third party promoter uh, for the value of their investment. and. We should think about these things. Now, no, we never came up with what we would call a decentralization test or anything like that, anything elaborate about, say, like, subsequently, lots of people said, like, well, what about the number of nodes on the network? Like, should it be a, an a, a objective test based on, like, actual empirical facts in the right. world or the concentration of ownership on the network, things like that? What is All the governance like? What are the tokenomics like, et cetera? Right. All we said back in 2016, and I still think it's the approach, and it's echoed in those two, two, two statements of fact in the Judge Torres's opinion, is, look, if it's a pre-sale, i.e., you know, someone's collecting money from 
people who are interested in this network, but the network doesn't exist yet, it can't be quote unquote decentralized. And the inverse of that is to use the legal term, which is say you're definitely reliant on those person's efforts to build the network because it doesn't even exist yet. Someone has to write the open source software. Someone has to write the protocol. Someone has to run the software. You know, this is all yet to happen. And then the other thing we said is, look, it needs to actually be an open permissionless blockchain. And that means the software is open source. Anyone can change it, edit it, copy it, distribute it. And the, the mechanism for updating the ledger should be open uh, protocol or open uh, consensus mechanism, which we've explained in lots of different places is either proof of work or proof of stake. Ripple's actually interesting because it's I've referred to it sometimes as social consensus because it's got this like there's a list of valid validators, but anyone can change that list. But anyway, this notion that there should be some way for a third party unrelated to the project thus far can just enter the 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 network and be an equal participant on that network, you know, depending on how much how much effort they're going to put in, whether it's proof of work or proof of stake or you know these sorts of things. But it's just a you don't need to ask permission. It's just, you just join and you do the thing that gets you the right to do stuff on the network. And so the, the reason to bring out those facts, you know, as stated as fact in this opinion, is that the the the, the, the opinion, the decision she makes, the holding she, she delivers is predicated on those facts, yeah. right? And so you have to take for granted, as the judge did here, and the parties seem to have, right, that XRP... Um, did not do a pre-sale. Mm -hmm. And number two, XRP is open and decentralized, for, for lack of a better word, right? Yep. And so you have to take that as granted to then read the rest of the opinion. Right. Um, and, you know, if you have issues with, with that, you think that's not a fact? Well, you might, you know, if you don't think that's true, you might come to a different conclusion yeah. about the law, about, about the application of the law. But in this case... At the very top, those two things are established as fact. So, for yep. the purposes of this, you know, uh, uh, you know, the four corners of this opinion, it's a fact, and it's important, right? Because, um, as you say, uh, if there wasn't a presale, um, and if the thing is open where anybody can use, anybody can run, anybody can, so any, people have incentives to buy tokens to consume on the, to use on the network for their own purposes, etc. You know, that presents a whole different uh, idea of what. Uh, an investment of money is expectation of profits, et cetera. Yeah, and from a from a policy standpoint, it's it's the most relevant fact. Like mm -hmm. you might want to also know, you know, how many nodes are on the network and a lot of other things to know the security of the network, um, to know a lot of other things about the network. But from a from a justiciable, actually like trying to find good public policy standpoint, that's the one that matters. When we were writing that paper, I, I kept thinking back to. Uh, antitrust law, which I'm by no means an expert in, but there's this notion, um, more of an economics notion of, of antitrust, where we're not necessarily looking for a competitive market. We're looking for a contestable market. Like, are there barriers to new competitors entering the market? And if there are no real barriers, if anyone can enter the market, then we're going to assume that the existing competitors in the market, even though there's only one or two of them, are not going to behave badly vis-a-vis -vis their customers. They're not going to exploit them because they know that this new entrant will just come in and challenge them right away. And so in the crypto context, look, yeah, you might have a situation where there's only a handful of validators on the network, but they're behaving well. And you know, as long as more validators can enter if they need to, like to me, that is 
that is that is what we should hope for from a public policy standpoint as to what a decentralized network is. It's just one where there isn't somebody by fiat, by permissioned control saying, I, I run this. Because if you're doing that, then you're, you're, you're maintaining an Oracle database. And you're probably also, if you're selling a bunch of stuff that's described in that Oracle database that you have full control over, then you're probably issuing some sort of sec secured interest or some security or something like that. And by the, and we should just mention about Oracle database. You mean Oracle Incorporated, like the company? Yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. The old ledger technology yeah. versus decentralized ledger. Yeah. Technology. yeah. Okay. So so good. We we, we established that. Um, so let's get back to to the meat of the matter. You know, uh, we've said for years um, that there is a distinction to be made between a token and a securities offering. That's right. Um, and even if and you can have a token that is the subject of a securities offering, but it's a thing in its own, that it in itself is not a security. And Judge Torres here basically employs the same logic and analysis that we've been saying for years is the correct way to apply the law. And so if you will permit me now, I am going to quote from the opinion, and I'm, and I'm sorry folks, but I'm gonna be doing a lot of this because I think it's important. Um, so here is from the opinion, quote, Howie and its progeny have held that a variety of tangible and intangible assets can serve as the subject of an investment contract. See, for example, Howie, Orange Groves, Glenn Anderson, Whiskey Casks, Edwards, Payphones, Hawking versus Dubois, Condominiums, uh, Continental Marketing, Beavers. I love that Beavers was in there. Yeah. That's my favorite case. And then the one I love the most, SEC versus Telegram, Digital Tokens. Yeah. Okay, so because in that case, Okay, well, let me just continue reading from the from, from the quote. In each of these cases, the subject of the investment contract was a standalone commodity, which was not itself inherently an investment contract. For instance, in the original citrus groves in Howie were later resold, those resales may or may not constitute investment contracts, depending on the totality of the circumstances surrounding the latter transaction. Okay, it's like we could have written this ourselves. But the the land is not a security. I love that that that. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. She's a judge, a, a judge in a in a fancy district too. But I love that she stated that correctly because some people out there say like, "Oh, the oranges are not securities." Like, no, no, the, the contract wasn't for a sale of oranges. It was for a sale of orange, orange land. Groves. Land is not securities. We could postulate a contract where it was for a sale of oranges. And actually, the beavers is that the beavers were not securities. Yep. And so, again, this is so now going back to the facts that, that we laid out before. This is easy. The, what I just stated is easy to understand, given if you know if you take the facts as facts, this is easy because the token uh, is a commodity, right? It's it's open. Anybody can can get on the network and, and and use it, right? It's not it's not something that is issued and dependent on any party. It's it's hard though. Yeah, it's hard to understand, but yeah. it's hard for it's hard for people in the financial world, I think. Yeah, because the financial world has no history of like highly liquid markets in investment contracts, as in that subset of a securities. Mm -hmm. Like there aren't a bunch of weird Florida land deals that involve the service contract to pick fruit and sell it at market that are trading on the Nasdaq. And so to people who are enmeshed in the world of finance, I think you think a security is a security like they're just securities. I don't understand these things that are not securities except under certain manner of sale conditions. And that's what we're talking about in the investment contract analysis. Right. If I say, hey, um, fur hats are coming back in style, Jerry, 
you're going to want some beaver fur to make your fur hat. I've got a bunch of beavers. Do you want to buy a beaver? I know you don't want to take care of a beaver because they pee and they poo and you, you got to make but, but, Up to that point, if I buy the, if I say, yes, I want the beaver and you give me immediate delivery of the beaver. I show up with the cage. It's got the big teeth. It's cute. Yeah. I, you know, um, not a security. Maybe n- clearly not a security. But not go security. on. But then you say, but if I say, well, I, I know you don't want to raise this beaver. I happen to have this lovely beaver farm full of beavers and uh, I'm going to put yours in a special pen. It's that one's yours. The other ones aren't yours. I'm going to feed it really good food. I'm going to mate it. You're going to get all the fur from that beaver when it passes, sadly, and it's children's fur. And, you know, I'll just take care of that all for you. So here's a, here's a contract about the beaver maintenance. And here's a contract about you have title to the beaver. Uh, but this is not a security. You're, you're not owning a share of my beaver ranch. You're just buying the beaver and signing a contract for maintenance. This is a weird contract. Traditionally, and this is why the Howey case is weird, investment contracts are weird. Um, but they're, they're, they have a big body of law. And this opinion is completely in line with the past body of investment contracts law. It's true that people who trade in traditional securities look at all this and think that's all weird but it goes back to the 70s to the 60s to the 50s i think wj howie versus sec is 57 if i'm not wrong like this has been established for a while okay i'm gonna keep quoting here <laughs> sorry there's gonna be a lot of this uh quote even if xrp exhibits certain characteristics of a commodity or a currency it may nonetheless be offered or sold as an investment contract as another court in this district recently held, while helpful as a shorthand reference, the security in this case is not simply the digital token, the gram, so she's quoting Telegram, mm-hmm. which is a little more than an alphanumeric cryptographic sequence. Mm-hmm. This case represents a, quote, scheme, end quote, to be evaluated under the Howey that consists of the full set of contracts, expectations, and understandings centered on the sales and distribution of the gram. Uh, Howie requires an examination of the entirety of the party's understandings and expectations, citing Telegram. Uh, Let me just finish. XRP, as a digital token, is not in and of itself a, quote, contract, transaction, or scheme, end quote, that embodies the Howie test requirements of an investment contract. So she is citing Telegram, Mm -hmm. right? A seminal digital, you know, asset, SEC case, before the second circuit or, you know, before uh, SDNY for the same thing, for the proposition that you have to separate out token itself from the sale scheme contract offer, the kind of thing that can be a security. Yeah. And this is interesting because, you know, I don't remember if we did a tangents episode on telegram. I think we might've, maybe maybe not. And I know that we had some reservations about Mm -hmm. telegram. And so you might be thinking, well, well, why would we be, you know, happy about this decision that references this past decision that we were unhappy with? And so just to recap what Telegram was, Telegram was an emergency injunction sought by the SEC to stop the distribution of grams to the general public through the Telegram app. Right. And specifically what the SEC was alleging is, look, we've got this sale of grams to these big time investors. That was evidenced by contracts and negotiation, and it has all the manner of sale qualities of an investment contract. And and I think maybe it's not just you picking up the beaver from my beaver farm and owning it. It's a bunch of other stuff like I'll hold the beavers for this long, lockup provisions, if you will. I'll feed them. I'll take care of them. 
all these things that I'm doing as the seller to create indicia of expectation of profits. Now, what the SEC then said, though, and this might remain sort of the controversial part, is that the, the planned distribution to the public merged with that original sale to big investors. And those big investors actually weren't purchasers of a security. They were underwriters of a long sale that happened over a, a matter of months, if not years, that ultimately was intended, even if it didn't look like it, to be a sale from the promoters to the general public through the investors, which were underwriters. But this doesn't, this, this, this still doesn't mean that grams are securities. This just means that the SEC said the investment contract hopped over the VCs or the other big investors who made that first purchase and was actually just one big contract from the promoters to the general public. So the security was this investment contract to the general public through the investors, not the grams themselves. I don't think we I wouldn't I did not disagree with that at the time. I think it's yeah, probably I, right I don't now. I don't take an opinion. Uh, I don't have an opinion on that, or maybe I do, but I'm not gonna say what my opinion is uh, about that. But I will say that even if that case was correctly decided and they were underwriters, et cetera, it can be distinguished from this case because pointing back to the facts that we laid out at the very beginning, there was no pre-sale here. Yeah. Okay. What we have here are a bunch of tokens owned by the company Ripple that are tokens that operate on a completely decentralized network. Okay. So there were no, right? So the promises at issue here are not about the creation of a network that you're making to investors and then you're gonna launder yep. those tokens to the general public. These are commodities owned by a company that were sold in one instance to the general public and in another instance to investors along with promises. Promises, lockups, a lot of lawyering and agreements and things. Like Correct. So, and so you don't even you don't even need. I mean, you're you're right. They're distinguishable because Telegram was a pre-sale and the Ripple sales were, as stated in the fact pattern, after the Ripple network was live. But you also don't need to distinguish because the the two decisions are not in conflict with each other with right. respect to sales to institutional persons. Because and we haven't gone over the general holding for the yeah, case. Yeah, well, we're we're assuming that you you know if you're listening to tangents, you've all already. Like you know, fifty thousand takes on Twitter, but but in a nutshell, sales to institutional buyers were deemed to be securities because they were commodities sold in a manner of sale as an investment contract, and then programmatic. So the judge calls them programmatic sales, just selling them through an exchange, like in a, in a, in a typical order book situation, were deemed to not be securities sales, and so the Telegram case was all about these sales to these institutional buyers who were then treated as underwriters, ultimately expecting to sell to the general public in one single big monolithic sale. That aspect of the Telegram opinion is completely um, impossible with the institutional buyers in the uh, in the Ripple case being found to be buyers of a security, buyers of an investment contract. Yeah, and I think it's, and we'll get to this in, in a little bit, but I think it's unfortunate that the judge here chose the specific labels of institutional purchases yeah. and programmatic purchases or institutional sales and programmatic sales to refer to these two categories. She could have picked any label in the world. Yeah. But she chose those two labels. And I think that has caused some confusion because people think, well, if I, it's, it's about who you are, what, what your position is in the world. Oh, so, so if I'm an institutional uh, you know, buyer, then I have certain protections from the SEC. But if I'm a mere <laughs> retail right. 
buyer, like a mom and pop, then I don't have these protections. It sounds like a classic <laughs> inversion of the public policy rationale for securities law, which is to protect mom and pop and say that the hedge fund can go do what it wants because it, it's a sophisticated investor. Yeah. Money what is this SDNY judge thinking, right? Yeah. Like, of course, she, she, she understands what the public policy of the securities laws are. And no such inversion exists here because it's not about the buyer. It's not about being an institutional buyer versus being just a buyer on an exchange through the quote unquote programmatic sales. It's about the intent of the seller and what they put the buyer on notice of by their manner of sale. We can't go into the world and know what's in the head of everybody who buys uh, corn at the grocery store. We can know that sometimes somebody goes in front, stands in front of the grocery store and says, yeah, you could buy corn in there, or you could come over here and look, I've got this corn field. I'll give you a huge discount on the future of all this corn. You're going to pay me up front. Like then it starts to become a securities offering because now I've got all these additional promises about what I'm going to do with my corn field. It's about what that person puts into the mind of the buyer. And so you know, not to yeah, yeah, yeah. judge Torres's choice. It's just her choice of word. We agree yeah. with the holding, but the labels are confusing because it really should have been about manner of sale to institutional buyers. It really should have been about an investment contract, a commodity right. plus other promises versus manner of sale to the programmatic buyers, which is just selling a commodity with no other warranties to those buyers. In fact, not even knowledge of who those buyers might be, in which case we can't say that you're putting those people on notice of your efforts. I would I would say I don't think you could have labeled the category investment contracts because that would have been a tautology, right? Yes, there are investment, contract because there are investment, contracts. investment contracts where there were investment contracts. But you know, <laughs> ideally, I would have been better to see. I think it would, yeah, yeah, I think you would have avoided some confusion in the lay public if you had chosen labels something like contingent sales and non-contingent sales, right? So right. That, that's what I mean is it's the yeah, it's yeah, I know you mean that. analysis, but it's the manner of sale as to what the seller does, not exactly. who the buyer is. So it's not institutional versus regular. Yeah. It's manner of sale, commodity sold with promises. Yeah. Oh, that's an investment contract. Commodity sold with no promises. That's not an investment contract. It, 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 yeah. Commodity sold at arm's length to an unknown party. Yep. Not a security. Yes. Not an investment contract. Um, so getting so um, speaking of that, here is the holding related to the programmatic sales. Having considered the economic reality of the programmatic sales, the court concludes that the undisputed record does not establish the third Howey prong. Uh, whereas the institutional buyers reasonably expected that Ripple would use the capital it received from its sales to improve the XRP ecosystem and thereby increase the price of XRP, and then she cites uh, Kick. SEC versus kicker, kicker versus SEC. Mm -hmm. uh, programmatic buyers could not reasonably expect the same. Indeed, Ripple's programmatic sales were blind bid-ask transactions, and programmatic buyers could not have known if their payments of money went to Ripple or any other seller of XRP. Um, what was I going to say uh, about that? Oh, so one thing that's, that I think is interesting, just to point out, is that she's saying... Having considered the economic reality of programmatic sales, the court concludes that the undisputed record does not establish the Howey prong test. And as she says throughout the thing, she repeats several times, there's no evidence that the programmatic buyers you know, knew anything, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the SDC could well, show evidence. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Pause. She Hand does say the test, the test is not 
what was in the mind of the buyers. Yeah. It is what the seller intended to create in the mind of the buyers. It is what what did they it's sort of an estoppel argument. Like if Ripple had gone out and said to a bunch of the general public, buy Ripple, we're going to make it go to the moon. And then they'd gone on an exchange and bought it. Maybe you'd have some, those are the facts the SEC has to yes, show. But you, but you would have to show two things. You'd have to show statements by Ripple to that effect. Yep. And I think the SEC does put into evidence a bunch of statements that were made at public conferences, et cetera, that could mm-hmm. be, um, argue to be statements to the public. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the SEC shows something like that. But then the SEC also has to show that somebody acted on this and 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 there was some meeting of the mind there, right? Yeah, a contract. A contract, shall we say? Even though the judge rejects the the, the need for a contract as as, a as an essential perfunctory step to the Howey test, Correct. which is fair. We don't necessarily need more steps to the Howey test, but the judge is reading a lot of that into step. In here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the point is that uh, the SEC isn't showing, you know. And by the way, she says the programmatic sales were, am I, am I reading this right? Were 1% of all Ripple sales, something like that? So, yeah. But no, no, no. So Ripple's, Ripple being the seller yes, in the 1%. programmatic sell was only 1% of all the sales of Ripple happening on these platforms. Right. And her point here, and it's a very good point, uh, and I'm pres- presuming that Ripple's lawyers argued this point, um, or maybe she just picked up on her own, I'm not sure. But the point here is, if you just go to uh, Coinbase and buy Ripple, there's a 1% chance um, over the entire life of all sales of Ripple on Coinbase that you actually bought it from from the company. You bought XRP from Ripple because the company was selling on Coinbase or was selling on similar uh, bid-ask exchanges. But most of the time, you were buying from just somebody else who owned Ripple, you know? And so there's this question of like, like how how could we assume there to be some sort of quasi-contractual? Obviously, there's no contractual relationship in a in a typical like um, market, you know, order for something. Um, there, there's no like obvious. You, you you don't you just have bid and bids and asks. You you don't even know who your counterparty is, and it's it's the processes of the exchange that ensure that your interests are protected. Um, but even a quasi contract, like it doesn't make sense if most of the time you're actually going to be buying from like Joe Schmo who has Ripple, and you don't know the difference of buying from him versus buying from Ripple itself, who has XRP. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so um, the, you know, so we think that the decision is broadly speaking correct, and we'll get to some other parts of, of, of it in a, in a minute that I. I'm not so sure are correct. Or do, do you want to talk about the third part of the holding? I'm gonna get to that. Okay, I'm gonna get to that because uh, you're talking about the other distributions. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to that in a minute because I have questions about that. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not as settled on that. No, I, I do too. We we didn't plan this. We didn't plan this. Oh, interesting. Um, as as usual, violent agreement. Um, so. Uh, so anyhow, so that so we think the decision was is broadly speaking correct. Uses the right analysis, gets to the right conclusion given the facts that were taken for granted. Um, now, there's been a lot of different takes out there in the world. Um, a lot of people uh, are, you know, seem to be confused by this um, opinion, or at least think that it, uh, you, you know, it is is confusing. Um, so, people we respect, so for example, uh, Matt Levine. 
uh, Bloomberg columnist, somebody who I respect very much, and I'm a you know regular reader of his column, and I find it, and usually he is like spot on, and also um, hilarious. The, the hilarious. WeWork, I still pull up and read for a laugh. So which one? The WeWork one. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he is usually like very spot on about what is going on in the crypto space. Um, and cuts through the BS and, and gets right to the to the quick of it. Um, and so, you know, but I read his column on this and um, I was a little surprised, I, I you know, he, that it didn't seem to be clicking. And so I wanted, I mean, you know, just I, I'm sorry to be picking on him. I don't mean to be picking on him, I, but I think he is uh, the best person to stand in for all the confusion that I saw on Twitter and in the press. Uh, so, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matt Levine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt, we're going to just talk about you. I mean, he's, he's welcome to come here anytime. Yeah, that's true. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll be happy to have him on and, and discuss this stuff. Um. So one thing before I, I just because you you were talking about buying on the open market and not knowing who you're buying from. Um. One thing he does, and the way he, be, he begins his column is by describing um, Meta stock. So Meta a.k.a. Facebook, stock. And he says, well, the way Meta is structured, uh, when you have a share of Meta, um, you do not have any governance rights because the way Zuckerberg set up the, 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 you know, the structure of the corporation, he has basically all of the decision rights. And also, Facebook or Meta has never paid a dividend, as far you know, I think is what he said. So when you have a share, you don't expect to ever get any dividend or any stream. You know, maybe if, if Meta is acquired, you'll get a, you'll get something from that. But Meta, or, or if they went bankrupt, if they got wound down, you you are you are a creditor in bankruptcy. Like you have an ownership right, hundred percent. But his point being that that's not you know Meta's yeah. probably not going to go bankrupt, and Meta is not going to be acquired because it's like one of the five largest companies in the in the world. Um, so it's not going to get acquired either. Um, and so when you buy a stock, a, a, a share of Meta, um, you know, he's saying, well, you don't have any governance rights. You don't expect anything, but you still get the benefit of disclosures from the company that they're required to be doing, et cetera. Um, and the analogy here is, okay, well, now we, we come to to XRP and uh, you have XRP where you don't expect anything from Ripple. You can't govern the Ripple company with a share of XRP. Um, the same as Meta, but I mean, this is this is like a weird analogy to me. Um, and it's a weird analogy to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, he chose the weirdest uh, stock you could pick on the entire stock exchange. Most shares of stock do give you um, voting, rights, yeah. voting rights, do give you dividends, uh, et cetera. Uh, but also, you know, uh, it's distinguishable because at the end of the day, it's a security. I mean, sorry, it's a stock. Yeah. It's a different thing from an investment contract. Well, I think what he was driving at maybe in that you, you don't get voting rights, you don't get a dividend is, you know, is that it's not a security. <laughs> but the fact is you still have legal rights against yeah. the issuer. And therefore, the issuer is required to make certain disclosures before people put their money down to buy those legal rights. Correct. And and even though Facebook is weird, I'm sorry, I, I sometimes refuse to call it meta. 
Uh, but even though Meta is weird, you still have legal right. It, it was a legal. Um, it was a. It was a security that was issued. It was you have part ownership in this corporation, yep. and you can't just pretend that that doesn't exist to make a point. Yeah, correct, correct. And if his point is that um, the policy uh, that governs stock issuance should be the same kind of policy of, of investor protection as to investment contracts. He's right. It is. And yes. there's nothing in this case that uh, upsets that. And so to that point, um, uh, I'll say, let me see, hold on. Where is it? Um, does, I, I'll ask you this question, Peter, does this decision mean that sophisticated parties get protection, but unsophisticated retail market participants don't? And I'll quote Levine here, quote, this is Levine speaking, quote, if you go around making public statements on your website and on Reddit and elsewhere, saying things like, quote, if you buy your our, if you buy our token, we will use the money to build an ecosystem and make the token more valuable, quote, end quote. That makes your token a security. But only to people who are sophisticated enough to read your website. Sophisticated institutional investors who read your web disclosures documents and understand that they are making an investment in your business are entitled to the protections of the securities laws while random retail day traders who just like your ticker symbol are not. You cannot be doing securities fraud on them because they are not paying attention. So that's uh, Levine. Yeah. I, I've got a couple of things to say about this, but you, you go first. Well, I was gonna, this, is, this is what we were saying earlier, is it, this is not a holding, and nor is, and this holding is just reflecting the ground principles of securities laws, nor are securities laws architected to create this sort of inversion of investor protection where we protect the institutional buyers and we let the lay public just, you know, sink or swim. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is people get protection when they're in contracts with issuers, you know, when they've actually been induced to rely and then have relied on the promises of the issuer. And all the court is saying here is, look, we have to cut off liability somewhere just to have an efficient you know, market, to have an efficient legal system. And the place where securities laws historically have cut off liability is where there really is no direct inducement and contract between the buyer and seller, where really all the buyer has done is buy something from some third party or from someone else at an arm's length transaction that isn't actually a legal instrument, that isn't actually a stock certificate or something like that. And so the people who are getting protected in the Ripple case are the people who did buy a legal instrument. They signed, um, you know, a, a probably very lengthy agreement. I haven't looked at it myself with lockups, with um, choice of law provisions, with other warranties. Um, these are the so-called institutional buyers. It's not that we're protecting them because we, we perversely want to protect rich institutional people and not the lay public. It's we're protecting them simply because they actually were induced to rely on promises by Ripple. And so when we can point to that, we can we can actually have securities laws come in and say, yes, we're here to protect you. So that, and in addition to that, it's I think he gives away his confusion when he says that if you go around making public statements, um, that makes your token a security, but only if you do it to sophisticated people and not. To, when he says makes your token a security, um, he is, you know, uh, betraying the fact that he sees what the institutional buyers purchased and what the retail buyers purchased as equivalent. 
right. the same thing. And they are not the same thing. The token is not a security. The retail uh, buyers, they bought XRP. The institutional buyers bought an investment contract with a bunch of stipulations, including the delivery of some XRP. Yeah. These are not equivalent. Yeah. So it's not as if we're treating one thing differently than the other, depending on who is at the other end of the bargain. It's that these are two different bargains. One is subject to securities laws. One is not. One, and by the way, the ones that are not are subject to fraud, tort, yes, other things. So it's not like there's no recourse. Um, and the other thing, here's a um, wacko um, analogy I try to come up with. Uh, tell me, try it out on you. Um, suppose that I own a gold mine. Okay, and gold we understand, everybody understands is, is a commodity, right? Mm -hmm. Gold bars are not securities. Uh, and there is a market for gold, right? And it's a liquid market, et cetera. And, but I own this big, um, and let's say it's a big deposit, right? I own um, this gold mine. And in addition to owning the gold mine, I also am a physicist that is working on a way to um, basically create cold fusion using gold or something, right? I'm going to make gold the input into yeah. a, um, process that creates unlimited energy, right? So it's going to be very valuable. And of course, if I am able to do this, the value of gold everywhere is going to go up. Mm -hmm. uh, the gold, in order to finance my project, um, I sell gold that I mine for my gold company. I do it in two ways. Number one, I sell it on the open market on an arm's length transaction to people I don't even know. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do is that I tell investors about my scheme and i say buy some gold because i'm building this thing if you buy gold from me i'm going to use that money to create my process and have a limited energy etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. i think matt levine would agree that gold is never a security and, and, and that example should be analogous to the xrp thing right again if the facts that we laid out at the beginning are right because gold is different from a from a from a Token, but Juan, sorry, what do you think about that analogy? No, I think it's good. It reminds me of something I've said before about um, like if Henry Ford had been even more conniving and figured out even stranger ways to make money. Um, like, what if you are Henry Ford, you've got this idea to mass produce the automobile and change the way everybody, you know, moves around the world? Huge, world changing, very profitable idea. You say, but my, my business model is not going to be to sell cars. I'm going to give away the cars. I'm just going to like give them away, put them out in the world. And before people realize how great cars are, I'm going to speculate about oil. I'm just going to buy up a shit ton of oil. And maybe I'm even going to bring other people in on this. And be like, you're going to help me buy up most of the oil in the world. And people are like, oil? What are you really into lamps or something? Like, we have whales for that, dude. Like, why, why, why should we? And, and you say, well, I'm working on the automobile. So if you give me some money to help buy up more oil, we're going to have a lot of oil. And once this invention, the automobile works, this oil is going to be way more valuable. That person, that person bought a security from you. They bought oil through you, but they also bought your promise to make oil more valuable by inventing the automobile, distributing it widely and creating or inducing a high demand for oil. Somebody who's just buying oil, though, is just buying oil. It's still just oil. Yep. Even if they're buying with the expectation that, hey, I see more people driving cars these days. 
I think this oil is going to be valuable. If, if you didn't go to that person directly and put that idea in their head and say, you can rely on me in order to make this future happen and your oil be more valuable, it doesn't, it, it's your mere idea that oil is going to go up in value because you saw somebody else inventing the automobile. It doesn't make oil a security. Yep. And, and Levine also kind of um, focuses on the fact that the judge points out that when people were buying um, XRP on the markets, they didn't know if Ripple was on the other end of that transaction. And he, and forgive me if I'm misreading him, but I think he takes that to mean um, that if you sell anonymously, then you can get away with securities uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, crimes, right? Um, and no, it's just that knowing who you're giving the money to is an indicia of what you want to accomplish with, you know, with, with, with the purchase. Well, right? Knowing who you're, who, who is going to give you the money and who you're giving the token to is an essential component of having some sort of actual contract or quasi contract with that person. Right. Sure. But even if you don't put the contract, even putting the contract piece aside. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't know though. I think that's actually the, so maybe we found some area where we slightly disagreed or, or differentiated in our reading I read Judge Torres's third prong analysis as we can go beyond mere contract because there's lots of quasi contract cases in the in the Howie uh, progeny. But we need at least some sort of quasi contract where the parties have to have some knowledge of each other and be stopped by the other party's behavior. And the, the point of the when you buy Ripple on Coin or XRP on Coinbase, you don't even know if you're buying it from Ripple or buying it from Palm or buying it from whoever. Is this statement that, like, look, we can't even say that because Ripple was selling XRP on Coinbase, they somehow stopped you and made you expect them to work on 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 your behalf because you didn't even know you were buying it from them you just wanted to buy some of this thing again like in the henry ford oil example you might know that henry ford is out there making the automobile awesome and so you say i'm gonna buy a bunch of oil but that doesn't mean that there's a quasi contract between you and henry ford like that would be in we we could invent an investor protection regime that worked that way but i would posit to you that that would be a horrible state of affairs where no one was ever able to do anything novel or unique in the world for fear of creating in the minds of the general public some expectation that some random shit in the world like oil is going to suddenly be valuable and if that value doesn't materialize you can then sue henry ford right <laughs> you know? like it's insane um but yeah okay so let's move on to where i think uh, and again we didn't plan this ahead of time but it sounds like maybe <clears throat> we both had uh, you know, our, our heads tilted uh, to the side a little bit yeah. when we were when we got to this part of the opinion, and that is um, when she talks about other distributions, right? So Ripple sold to investors. They, she sold, and they sold to investors investment contracts. Yep. They sold to the market commodity XRP, yep. and then lastly, they had other distributions, and these other distributions were to uh, employees and enticements for ecosystem yeah and so this is what the judge says uh quote the other distributions do not satisfy howie's first prong that there be an investment of money as part of the transaction or scheme howie requires a showing that the investors quote provided the capital in quote uh quote put up their money uh quote provided cash uh, etc mm -hmm. in every case 
finding an investment contract to purchase or gave up some tangible and definable consideration in return for an interest that had substantially the characteristics of a security. Uh, here, the record shows that the recipients of the other distributions did not pay money or, quote, some tangible and definable consideration, end quote, yeah. to Ripple. It's interesting. To the contrary, Ripple paid XRP to the employees and the companies. And as a factual matter, there is no evidence that, quote, Ripple funded its projects by transferring XRP to third parties and then having them sell XRP, which is something that the SEC had alleged. Uh, because Ripple never received the payments from these XRP distributions. That's the underwriter argument. That's more yep. complicated. We don't need to deal with it. Yeah. And I think that's probably right, the way she, she put it there. We, we can we can kind of put this to the side. I think so. But yeah. So, so, I mean, if you, Peter, if you work for Coin Center and Coin Center pays you in uh, coin coin, um, would you say that you're not providing any uh, consideration? Sure, you've seen the quality of my work. <laughs> That's true. It is, it, is, it, is not, it is not even a peppercorn of consideration. <laughs> this is clearly, a, a, you're, you're just a benefactor. You're just, yeah. You just like me and you want to make me rich. No, I mean, no, yes, this is exactly the, yes, this is exactly what also made my head kind of go yeah. like itself. And, and so, like, from, from my perspective, like, so just to, in case people haven't, like, read in on what we're mind-melding about right now, it's, it's like, like, employees providing labor to Ripple does seem to be some sort of valuable consideration. So why, why is it just an investment of cash, an investment of money? Why wouldn't we read investment of money more broadly to include any kind of valuable consideration, right. including uh, labor, um, favors, other things, you know? And so here, here's here's what I, I immediately thought. I thought, oh, cool. We're going to get the airdrop ruling in the Ripple case, which is a surprise to me because I've been waiting for an airdrop ruling for a long time. And so to unpack that, uh, lots of projects do airdrops. They say like anyone with a Bitcoin address is going to be able to, you know, get some of this new token because they already have the private key that matches that Bitcoin address. And so we're just going to give out new token in pro rata shares to how many Bitcoins people have and people will be able to spend them. It's a cool distribution scheme to try to get crypto out to a larger population without actually engaging in any sales. You could say that this is some sort of way around securities law if you were a sort of a, a more conspiratorial minded, or you can say this is actually just a fair way to distribute a token to a large group of people because you actually want the token to be decentralized and you want lots of people to have sort of interest in it and not not have them rely on your efforts, which once they give you money, it's sort of like now, now I'm on the hook to them. I just want to distribute it out there and people will use it and we'll see what happens. So that's airdrops. And there, I think... You know, the SEC has made some fairly loud noises about airdrops because they've been somewhat expansionist about their jurisdiction. There's no doubt about that lately. And they've said, hey, look at the stock giveaways in the 1990s. We wrote some uh, some letters of no action. We denied no action in some cases uh, where dot com companies were saying, visit our website and you'll get shares of XYZ dot com of pets dot com or something like that. And the SEC said back then, look, even asking your purchasers of your or, or your your recipients of your gratuitous giveaways of stock to visit your website and put in your email address and often it was like share with five friends or things like that even that action of them visiting the website and sharing the url with five friends is valuable consideration which would qualify um, as as part of a contract for sale of securities now What's interesting about that, so the SEC says airdrops are probably security sales because the stock giveaways were too. 
actually is very similar to what we were just discussing in the contrast of like, let's use meta stock as an example versus XRP. Well, the problem here is that those shares of dot-com startups that were being given away if you visited their website were already securities. They were equity shares of a legal corporation. And when you purchased them, you obtained ownership rights to the corporation. That's what a shareholder is. And in airdrops, they are not. We need to first find the thing that's given away to be a security. And so then we need to actually do the Howey analysis. So the SEC didn't have to do the Howey analysis with respect to the stock giveaways in the 90s because the thing was a security. Here, you have to do the Howey analysis, which means you have to satisfy the first prong, which is investment of money. And at that point, you could say, well, wait a minute, is really just visiting a website investment of money? No. And so I've been waiting for this kind of holding from a court for a long time. Someone would have to come with the right claim as a plaintiff and they'd have to, to argue well. But then this would be a, a pretty, I think, good, fairly uncontroversial holding because merely having a Bitcoin address doesn't mean I gave valuable consideration to the person that airdropped um, Litecoin onto me or something like Litecoin wasn't an airdrop. But you know what I mean? Now, here... <laughs> Here, there's a color. I think there is a color. I don't mean to like ask for more securities regulation in our space, but I do think there is probably a colorable argument that there is some sort of investment going on. And I would have expected the judge to probe that yeah. and give some sort of like deeper factual analysis as to why this was not sufficient to satisfy the first prong. But the the, the holding basically says, there is no investment of cash. Now, maybe the whole lineage of cases says the really the only thing you can do is, is buy uh, with cash. But yeah. you know, I would have to go look at the case law, and uh that's what we have you for. So we'll go through that maybe some other time. But again, just reading the little bits of the um presidents that she cites, she cites International uh, Brotherhood of Teamsters versus Daniel. Mm-hmm. And she cites it, quote, in every case, finding an investment contract, a purchaser gave up some tangible and definable consideration yeah. in return for an interest that substantially had a characteristic of a security. That doesn't say cash. That says um, tangible. tangible and definable consideration to yeah. which I would say that labor would be that. And so to me, it's not about, so I, I think she may have quite um, accidentally reached the right outcome, but it's not because of the first prong. It's because, as you say, you have to do the analysis and I would have to go look at the in, uh, in, uh, employee contracts of each Person, because again, if I'm a gold mine and I hire you to work on my gold mine and I say, I will pay you in gold, you work, you know, your weekly wages will be delivered to you in gold and you give me labor, I give you gold. That's not a security. However, if I say I'm going to give you gold because of in all these other, but you can't spend it and you have all these other um, parts of the contract, then it may well be a security. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, it might be, this is something I I don't know. And maybe a securities lawyer would have a quick answer to this. So if you do write in the comments, uh, like, and subscribe, no, no, call me or email me at peter at coincenter.org. But um, it's probably somewhat moot though. Yeah. Because uh, and I don't know that I'm not a, I'm not an expert in, in traditional securities law by any means. I think you could do distributions to employees of your company, uh, generally speaking, and 
that is not something that's subject to sort of a registration requirement or some other affirmative duty on your part as the issuer to go to the SEC and announce and get regulated in a certain way. And so even if the distributions to employees or the giveaways to third parties were um, themselves investment contracts, because we do find that the, the tangible consideration offered in return for them, even though it wasn't cash, was sufficiently tangible, valuable yeah. consideration, then it might still not trigger any kind of like failure to, 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 to perform some duty on the part of the issuer because yeah. you gratuitous giveaways might not trigger much. Uh, I, I don't know. That's an interesting for, question. For, and for then, that, but and then that, that little dangling thing that we said, push aside the underwriter yeah. thing is the, is this actually just a way to distribute to the general public through a unified sale and the employee is actually an underwriter in this case, or the recipient of a giveaway is an underwriter with an expectation that they'd sell it to the general public. And here, I think Judge Torres is completely right. It, it's ridiculous to call, like, if I just give a bunch of stuff away with the tacit except, uh, expectation that those people are going to then sell them to the general public, and with the money that they get from that sale to the general public, they're going to reimburse me through some non-clear way that I never contracted for. Like, that's a ridiculous way to be an underwriter. And I just don't think you could legally find that person to be an underwriter, nor would public policy argue that we should find that person to be an underwriter to protect the quote unquote investors who are the general public in that sale. But right. that's a whole other thing. Yeah. And so the bottom line is that while we think that directionally she got the right outcome, we're kind of, we think it's weird. And I wouldn't be surprised if she might be reversed on, on that little piece. I don't know. Um, about uh, whether there was an investment of money um, here. Um, that is all we have. I hope this helps folks. Um, I, it's always way better for me and Peter to just kind of chat about this in one hour, almost on the dot, um, rather than try to write out our thoughts. Uh, it's a lot quicker. Um, so hopefully this was useful to folks. Any parting words? Um, it, it's sending ripples through the ecosphere, Jerry, in uh, this case. Fantastic. Yeah, it's the best I could do. Thank all you. right. We'll see you all next time. Bye, Peter. Bye, Jerry.